You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, teacher, mom, photographer, and chairperson of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there. Today is March 19th, 2023, and this is episode 217 of Lighthearted. In a few minutes, we'll listen to a conversation I had with Timothy Mount and Lynn Mako, uh, who have been caretakers at several lighthouses in the U.S. and elsewhere. Uh, so how's your winter been going, Michelle? It's been going pretty well. I work at a middle school, so I've been surrounded by lots of germs this winter. So <laughs> I've actually been sick quite a bit, yeah. um, but it seems to be settling down now and we're looking forward to spring very much so. Yeah, yeah. Well, I knew you were a little bit under the weather for a while there. I'm glad yeah. you're, you're feeling better. And uh, as we speak, it's uh, what's today? The, actually, March 9th, we're speaking, and it was a beautiful, yep. uh, beautiful day today. It actually really kind of felt like spring. So spring and summer will be here before you know it. We can't say for sure yet whether we'll be able to have tours at Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse because of the storm damage that happened there in December. Yeah, we're, we're, you know, just still kind of waiting to see what's going to happen. It's unfortunate if we, you know, we're unable to do tours this summer. Hopefully we can at some point, but we'll just have to wait and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. As uh, you and I were just discussing before we started recording, it's uh, it's, a, it's uh, tough not knowing what's going to be happening this season. Right, but right. Hopefully you won't have to wait too long and we'll be letting people know when we know. Uh, right, exactly. Tours, tours there or not this year. And uh, we do know for sure, though, that we will have at least three lighthouse cruises from Rye, New Hampshire. We work with uh, Granite State Whale Watch on that. Always always great to, to work with them. Uh, we'll have sunset cruises on June 16th and 23rd and a daytime cruise with five lighthouses. We call it our five lighthouse cruise on September 23rd. Now, I'm hoping uh, you and I will both be on those cruises, Michelle. I will probably be on at least the sunset cruises. You know, we'll have to see the the five lighthouse cruise. Hopefully I can go. That's, you know, sort of at the start of the school year. So I remember mm -hmm. last year I wasn't going because I was just super busy. And then I think it didn't happen yeah. because of the weather, but... The start yep. of the school year is pretty busy for me. So Yeah. Sadly, we've uh, had kind of bad luck the last few years with uh, the weather and seas on these cruises. We've had to cancel a few, but when they happen, they're great. Hopefully, we'll yes. have a, a good season with those this year. As we speak, uh, we haven't quite got it on the website yet, PortsmouthHarborLighthouse.org, but it, it, these uh, cruises will be posted on there very soon. So, uh, if, uh, if people go on there and they're not there yet, uh, just check back and we'll have them posted very soon. You can make a reservation online, again, PortsmouthHarborLighthouse.org. And I recommend that people not wait too long because we do often sell out those cruises. Yes, definitely. So, Michelle, let's tell everyone about today's guests. Sure, Jeremy. Tim Mount and Lynn Mako live in the Adirondack region of New York but they have spent a good part of their lives going back to 2008, serving as volunteer caretakers at lighthouses in far-flung corners of the earth. Lynn is a retired physician, and Tim is a professor emeritus of music at Stony Brook University. Both of them are also experienced boat captains. Their caretaking experience began with three months at Maine's Seguin Island Light Station in the summer of 2008. In the years since then, they've returned to Seguin most years in the fall, conducting tours of the lighthouse and helping to maintain the buildings and grounds. 
In 2009, they became the first caretakers for the Essex National Heritage Commission of Baker's Island Light Station in Salem, Massachusetts. That year and in the following summer, they helped maintain the light station and trails and helped to install a solar power system. In the summer of 2013, Lynn and Tim were caretakers at remote Five Finger Lighthouse in Frederick Sound, Alaska. In 2018, they spent the summer as caretakers at the Protection Island National Wildlife Refuge in Washington, working on conservation projects and educating the public about the refuge. In between other caretaking gigs, Tim and Lynn spent three separate stretches as caretakers at Deal Island Lighthouse in Tasmania, Australia in 2011, 2015, and 2019. There, they greeted visitors and maintained buildings, including a museum, and looked after 10 miles of trails. In the winter of 2020, the couple served as campus hosts at the Skudik Institute and the Skudik Peninsula section of Maine's Acadia National Park. Then this past summer, they were the first ever volunteer caretakers at Bass Harbor Head Lighthouse, also in Acadia National Park. I had a chance to speak with Lynn and Tim via Zoom recently. Let's listen to that conversation now. I'm speaking today with Tim Mount and Lynn Mako, who have been caretakers at various light stations around the U.S. and elsewhere uh, in various corners of the globe. So thank you so much, Lynn and Tim, for being with me today. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. So uh, let's just start. Uh, obviously, I want to talk about the places where you've, you've lived, the interesting uh, light stations and other places you've lived. But let's just talk a little bit about your background first. I'm wondering how you got started being lighthouse caretakers. Uh, Lynn, first, you're, you're a physician. Is that correct? Yes. Are you retired or semi-retired at this point? I, um, I tried to retire. We moved to the Adirondacks, uh, to a rural place in the Adirondacks, and I was approached by the director of the local hospital. So I work one day a week in an outpatient clinic. And when I need to go away for a while, we make accommodations. Well, it sounds like a pretty good deal. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully good for everybody. Uh, and Tim, you were a professor of music. Is that right? At Stony Brook College in New York? Yes. Is that I, right? I, yeah. I was looking at some uh, information about you. It looks like choral music and piano were particular interests. Is that? Well, I mean, mm -hmm. Yeah. Choral, choral conducting was my major interest, but I was a, professional singer as well. Uh, I sang a lot in New York City. And then since I moved to the Adirondacks, I no longer had a choir. Um, I got bored with singing, frankly. And mm -hmm. so I took up piano again. And now I play chamber music, piano chamber music with, with other people who have escaped to the Adirondacks. Uh-huh. Good for you. That's fantastic. So how, uh, this is a question for either or both of you, but how did you get interested in becoming caretakers at Lighthouses? How did all that happen? Well, before we had met Lynn and I, this is our second marriage for each of us. And before we met, I had sailed to Seguin Island with a friend and I met the caretakers there. And then when Lynn and I met, I said, huh, I think this is something we'd like to do together. And so we applied and they took us out there for an interview and we immediately fell in love with the island and the idea of caretaking. We went around a corner and just hugged each other and cried a little bit and said, this is what we need to do. 
And that was the beginning. That was our first. Well, I can certainly understand the attraction. Seguin's a pretty amazing place. So your association with Seguin started in 2008, if I have it right. Yes. And uh, you've actually stayed involved over the years with uh, the Friends of Seguin Island. So, well, you kind of said it a little bit just now, but what, what is so special to you about Seguin? There are a lot of things. I mean, the location itself is beautiful with 360 degree views of the water and everything going on around you at night. You can look along the coast of Maine as everybody's lights come on and know that you're surrounded by other lighthouses. And the organization, it's a small grassroots organization with not a lot of money and a lot of heart. So through hard effort, they've really maintained that, maintained and improved that property over the years. And we, we spent, our first experience was the whole summer there. And then later we thought, they always closed at Labor Day. And we thought, you know, they should stay open a little while longer. And so we started doing that for them. And they bring back, now they bring back various alumni caretakers because they don't have to train them. And so we usually go for two weeks in the fall, sometime mm-hmm. between Labor Day and Columbus Day. And when you're living there, uh, what kinds of things does the, the caretaking position involve? What do you, what do, you do there? Well, Seguin um, has a policy where all tours are um, supervised. So we would lead tours up to the lighthouse when there are visitors, but there are many days when there are not. And there was always painting, trail work, and small engine repair to do. So it can be very varied. Yeah, back then um, there were fewer visitors and there was less on-island assistance by the friends of Seguin. Now they come out every week and the, the, the keepers go ashore. But it used to be that we were pretty much it in terms of the work. So that's, there was a lot of that to do. And we had a little bit more time to do it than the present caretakers have. Mm-hmm. So we got there, you know, a couple of the trails were lost so, you know, that's a lot of work to reclaim them once we found where they were. We had a couple of false starts and, and then all the, you know, the maintenance and, you know, what the salt water does to all the lighthouses. So there's yeah. always something to do. Sure. Yeah. They would have occasional parties come out to do a project, but invariably they'd get there. And if you've been to Seguin, you know, the landing can be dicey. They'd get there and then. Shortly into the project, they say, oh, seas are coming up. We need to go. Do you think you could finish that for us? And they would head out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I've been there and I, I do know the landing there can be dicey. Were there times when you were stuck there for longer periods than you had planned on, that kind of thing? How did that affect you, That uh, the difficulty of getting on and off there? Well, it was back then it was fairly flexible. So, you know, we would leave when we had good weather. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the problem there is the surge, even though it's the cove is protected, the surge manages to come around the point. And uh, more than once, we have lost our groceries in the water and other items. Me. <laughs> yeah, Lynn, Lynn sometimes falls in. <laughs> but we always have enough provisions on board and... Um, we've been healthy, so there's never been a time where we really were desperate to get off. Uh-huh. 
Just one other thing about Seguin that I thought I'd mention is that incredible lens, the first order Fresnel lens that's still in use there. That must have been wonderful being there at night, uh, like a clear night when you could see the stars and see that that gorgeous light shining out to sea. Yes, it was. And I think we were the first people since the the uh, friends of Seguin took over the light from the Coast Guard. I think we were the first people to clean the lens. And we religiously followed the instructions in the old lighthouse keeper handbook and used their formula for cleaning. Yep. Now it's a regular thing. Everybody cleans it because it's it's a lot of fun. And I think they use Swifter now. <laughs> Right. It's, yeah. I mean, I've cleaned the fourth order lens at Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse, but it doesn't compare to the, the size of that lens at Seguin. That must take, uh, what, two people, uh, several hours to get that done, I would think. The other part about that lens and the lighthouse is that at night in um, misty or cloudy weather, you get a an umbrella surrounds you with the light uh, shining out. And it's a really wonderful feeling. Yeah, I met with the uh, what do you call them, mastergals, the where the the panes of glass are separated in the lantern that would cause make it look like separate rays going out into the mist. I've I've seen that kind of thing. It's must be very beautiful. Yeah. So uh, why don't we why don't we move along? We got a, a lot of ground to cover here. You've been in so many places. I, I want to talk a bit about uh, Baker's Island Light Station in Salem, Mass. Another place I'm very familiar with. I grew up in Lynn, right near there. And uh, in recent years, I've I've narrated some cruises for the Baker for the uh, Essex National Heritage Commission and stuff. So I I know those people pretty well. So you uh, started there in 2009. How did you become the caretakers of Baker's Island? How'd that happen? That's an interesting story because we were on Seguin and I'm sure you know his name, but it, it escapes us now. But somebody came to Seguin by helicopter with the Coast Guard and he was I think he was sort of in charge of all of New England, um, maintaining the lights. This was back when we were in residence there the whole summer, so 2008 or so. Mm -hmm. And I asked him, since we were having so much fun, if he knew of any other opportunities. And he mentioned, well, you might want to call uh, Essex Heritage because he knew that they were going to be taking over uh, on Baker's. Mm -hmm. So we called Annie Harris, and we ended up spending two summers there. We were the first two. We were the caretakers for the first two years when Essex Heritage took it over. Great organization. I've interviewed Annie for the for the podcast in her office there in it's Salem. Real powerhouse. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's, since you were the first caretakers there for them. It seems like you, in a way, kind of laid the groundwork for future caretakers, would you say? Yeah, I think so. But, um, you know, we were doing a lot of basic stuff, a lot of cleanup. Mm -hmm. um, and just getting basic, a very small solar system going and dealing with the water issues and the septic and all that. Um, mm -hmm. Other people followed us, in particular, you know, Brian and Tara, yep. who were, you know, real working people they do a lot of work and they've done an awful lot on the island one of the houses had been a rental house and as an island house it had both houses had collected 
things over 50 years. So a lot of our work that first summer was emptying the houses and the accumulated garbage that was there. Stop leaks and do some basic painting. Now, in those days, in those early days under the organization, they were, they were not doing tours when you were there. Is that right? Or Right. Uh-huh. The only visitors were the island residents. Yeah. And over the years, that had become sort of their park. They were always over there. Not always, but, you know, they would frequently come to visit, and that was fine. But interestingly, we were never allowed off the Coast Guard property. We were not permitted to go on the rest of the island. Yeah. I have some some history, you know, and I've known about that situation for going back to the, the 90s. Uh, and as it developed in the 2000s with the uh, the owner change in ownership and all that, I know it was a little, shall we say, uh, I don't know, sticky or <laughs> what kind of word you want to use, but uh, not not always uh, the easiest transition. I think it's it's uh, it's getting better and better over the years from what I'm hearing. But it must have been interesting being there in those early days. It is a, a very private residential island. Uh, and uh, again, I don't know how how far we get it want to get into this, but uh, I'm sure you ran into some some opposition <laughs> while you were there. But this, the location was wonderful. It was where the pilot would uh, get on board the coal ships coming into Salem. And in fact, er, uh, years ago, that's where the pilots lived. One of the residences was the pilot house. So from uh-huh. where we, were, we could see the pilots, you know, with the moving coal ship, the boat would pull up. They'd hop on board and head into the harbor. We were provided a, a whaler to use to go back and forth to get our supplies. And we're boaters ourselves. We both have our captain's licenses. And so that's always a big attraction when we can do that. And mm-hmm. they provided a mooring for us. But again, you know, we had to land on the beach and we couldn't use the dock. And that could be challenging. I remember one time we had tickets to the, to the Red Sox and I was really looking forward to that. And the weather was just impossible. We couldn't go. So I called everybody I knew in Boston who wanted, who might want our Red Sox tickets. Wow. I feel for you as a lifelong Red Sox fan. I, I definitely feel for you. Well, it's, it's a great place. I love Baker's Island and it's uh, that organization has done such a, such a great job and, and things I think are getting, it's, it, you know, it's not easy managing these places anyway, but as far as the, the local politics, I think that situation has improved a lot over yeah. the years. But you were kind of pioneers out there at the time. Yeah. And we, we have talked to Annie, said she'd be interested in having us be there in the fall if we wanted. But again, our transportation would be limited. Mm-hmm. We couldn't keep a boat there because of the weather. Yeah. And so, you know, we haven't we haven't done that yet. Yeah. Yeah. I think your next light station where you were caretakers after Baker's Island was in Alaska. Five Finger Light Lighthouse Light Station. So how'd that happen? And uh, I, I'm really interested in hearing what life there was like. So that came about because I was watching a show called I think it was Coast Guard Sitka, and it was it was all the their daily activities. And one day the helicopter flew by this lighthouse, which I think was Point No Return. And I said to Tim, "That place looks amazing. We need to get there." And Tim wrote to them. And the organization was in the early stages of renovating or getting the lighthouse up to speed. They said, well, we can't take you, but we know somebody else that might be interested. And they forwarded our information to the couple that was that 
owned and was managing that lighthouse, Ed, Ed McIntosh, Ed McIntosh, and Jennifer. Jennifer, I can't recall, but it was a very small island. Um, I think less than two acres. Yeah, very small. Very small island. So we said, well. We'll go, but let's try it for like six weeks. We weren't sure how, because we like to exercise. We like to be able to be active. And while we were there, the place we were able to exercise was on the elevated wooden heliport. <laughs> mm. Run around and around and around <laughs> the, the, the helipad. I went kayaking a couple of times, but it's a little dicey out there. There's, you know, killer whales and the water is very cold. And the beautiful thing about Five finger are the whales mm. because they're a constant presence and it drops off immediately off of the island. It's sort of like the, the top of a mountain. So it's like 500 feet immediately off the island. These whales would literally swim right by you and you would hear them uh, breathing and jumping 24 seven the whole time we were there. What kind of whales are we talking about here? Mostly humpbacks. Humpback. It was magical. You'd hear them puff out and snort in. And there were also sea lions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there were a bunch of these breathing mammals always swimming around you. Even when, And it was such a small island. Even when you were lying in bed, you could hear them. And one day, Tim said to me, that's a really weird boat going by. You see that boat? And I said, that's not a boat. That's an iceberg. Yeah. <laughs> So it, it's quite a trip to get there from Juneau. And the other thing about Five Finger is there's there are no moorings. They tried to build a dock, and that was destroyed in the winter. In one by, year. By the storms. And so, you know, you get dropped off, and then that's it. They can't stay there. There's no place to tie up. It's happened almost everywhere we've been. Oh, well, we're going to take you out and we'll have this orientation and blah, blah, blah. But it was sort of like what Lynn was saying with the help, uh, with the people coming to help on Seguin. Uh, invariably, they would end up saying, well, we got to leave. So we get, you know, a one hour orientation. <laughs> and we'll see you in a few months. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And it's not like there's a manual to refer to either. Right? Usually we've, we've made some manual. We made one manual for Seguin, I think. Mm-hmm. But Wow. <laughs> How long were you at Five Finger? Six weeks. Only six weeks. Only six weeks. Well, still, it must have been an incredible, incredible six weeks. This was in summer, I assume. Yeah. Yes, it really was. And it's also used as a whaling research station. So some scientists would come through. And mm-hmm. it was a- interesting lighthouse because to get to the tower you had to go through the residence it's a different design than what we see on the east coast and i can't remember the style but it's sort of boxy yeah do they call it art deco yes yes yes. they built a a bunch of uh well there was the first round of alaska lighthouses i think in the early 1900s then some years later there were a bunch of them were rebuilt and i think that was one of those those rebuilt ones Yes, yes. Yeah. We have a model of it here at home. And Lynn, Lynn bought me a keyboard a long while ago so that I could practice. And I remember fondly practicing in the lighthouse and having it reverberate throughout the house. And Ed and Jennifer decided to get married and while we were there. So Ed came out by boat, I guess, and they recruited me to play the wedding music. So I sat out on the by the lighthouse 
And uh, Jennifer came by helicopter to the helipad, and they got married on the helipad. <laughs> wow. That was a lot of fun. But in the workshop, uh, workshops of these lighthouses are always interesting. And that one had accumulated way too much stuff. <laughs> but it also had the history. There was a board that stated the lighthouse keepers and what their outcome was. And I never saw so many desertions as at the Five Finger Lighthouse. So I wow. think midwinter, they said, we're out of here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. While you were there for those six weeks, was how was the weather? Was it was it fairly good? Yes. Lovely. Yeah. yeah. You know, rainbows. Yeah. Didn't get dark. You know, it never got dark, really. And it was fairly protected. It was in Frederick Sound. So it was it was pretty protected. Yeah. 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 Big sound, but you didn't get huge rollers. Would you do that again if you had the chance? Uh, this one of the more extreme experiences you've had. Yeah, we got really spoiled by maybe this is the next one on your list is Deal Island in Tasmania. We got very spoiled by that. Are you ready to move on to Deal Island? Yeah, yeah. Why don't we move on to uh, we still got some ground to cover here. So why don't we move on to Deal Island, which is uh, Tasmania, Australia, uh, and uh, another pretty isolated place. Right. So first of all, who uh, I'm, I'm not clear who who owns and runs the Deal Island Light Station. That's uh, managed by the Tasmania Parks and Wildlife. OK, OK. Park Service. And was it just a, was it um, just an opening you heard about that led you led you there? How that? Yes, because they have year round caretakers. And there was a period it's no longer the case. But at the time we were looking there was a shortage of applicants, it seemed. There was a, our first application was to Matt Syker. I don't know if you're familiar with that. That's off the south coast of Tasmania, and it's extremely isolated. Yes. Um, nowadays, they drop you off for six months. You get resupplied once after three months, and no visitors, unless there's a work party coming out. So... They invited us to do that, but we did a little bit more research uh, into the wind, uh, the, the weather, and the isolation. We decided we weren't quite ready for that yet. But then, you know, we did all these other ones. Now we would love to go back to Matt Syker, and they've decided they will only take Australian citizens. But that wasn't an issue when we went to Deal Island. Mm-hmm. So we applied for that and were successful. And we've been a total of three times, uh, three months each time. How isolated is Deal Island? How hard was it getting back and forth to there? Well, it's 60 miles offshore. That's it's, pretty isolated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's in the Bass Strait. It's 60 miles away from Melbourne, basically. But we would leave from a sec from Flinders Island, which was east of it in the Bass Strait. We would fly to Tasmania and then get over to Flinders Island. And the first two times we went, it was a horrible boat ride, four or five hour boat ride in um, facing seas because the Bass Strait has unopposed winds from halfway around the world. And it's a shallow body of water. So the waves are just awful. So the first couple of trips were by boat. And then the last time we went, they had uh, resurrected uh, grass, landing field and we went by plane and we arrived with all of our supplies for the three months and we get a quick the first time even i think i think he stayed one day 
the no, it was hours. Out, a couple first of hours time, the we first ran time. through all the systems, the solar systems, how the water works, how the whole place runs. And then oh, weather's got a turn. We're not going to be able to stay as long. We got to go. <laughs> and then you figure it out. But this came up as we were talking, comparing to Five Finger with two or three acres. We had an island to ourselves that was 4,000 acres with, you know, 10 or 12 trails on it. And so we had room to stretch our legs there. Plus, we could swim. Uh, you can swim there in their summer and their, su their spring and fall with a wetsuit. So I'd take my wetsuit and uh, we would do a lot of swimming there as well. During mm -hmm. one of our seasons, we didn't see anybody for a month. But in the summer, um, there are a lot of sailors that will use it as a stopping point if they're crossing from mainland Australia to Tasmania, because the island had at least five gorgeous harbors. We couldn't see the harbors, so somebody suddenly somebody would show up at the house. And when we were there in the summer, we were also there for the Sydney Hobart race, which is a big sailing race. The race didn't come by, but as the people were bringing their boats back to Australia, many of them stayed at the island and partied on the way back. And that was their ritual. I mean, we were the we were the visitors there because that was the island they stopped at every year on the way home. Were there any kind of organized tours there? No. Well, what we did was um, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if so, we were quite a ways from the lighthouse. We were a uh, mile at least. No, no. It's two or three miles from the lighthouse, and the lighthouse there is a thousand feet above sea level. We were up from the harbor quite a ways, a couple hundred feet. But if somebody wanted to tour the lighthouse, we would give them the key and just make sure and bring back the key. Otherwise, we've got to go up there because the door to the outside catwalk had a nasty habit. There was no way of leaving it open, and it had a nasty habit of slamming shut, and it could maroon people out there on the catwalk so if somebody didn't come back then we had to go up there and um, help them out and then pieces of it started falling off the, the outer wall started falling off and so they wouldn't let visitors our last time there visitors were not allowed up there but it was also when they also renovated it so that may have changed because they did a big painting and renovation of the lighthouse in 2019 any interesting wildlife there Wallabies, wallabies, <clears throat> penguins. We were the, the first night we were there, it sounded like there were a bunch of old men snoring outside. And that's <laughs> after dark, the penguins come up into their burrows and make all their noises. So they were adorable, little fairy penguins. Huh. Huntsman spiders, not considered unusual in Australia, but as Americans, you don't like to see a dish plate sized spider. <laughs> no, I wouldn't care for that. Are they dangerous at all? No. no, no, they aren't dangerous. They have small mouths. They don't even weave webs. They uh, travel very quickly. They'll sit in a. They'll sit someplace for several weeks. They won't move, and then they'll just flash out and catch something, just by running after it. Oh, and you were a bit. There was something Another called bull ants. Of the bull ants, which are inch-long black ants, which have a terrible bite, and I was bitten at least twice, two or three times. And it's just oh. like somebody puts a hammer to your uh, foot. Because I was wearing, I was wearing Tevas. I, I couldn't wear shoes because I had a problem with my foot. So I was wearing these sandals. 
and we'd go off doing some bushwhacking and invariably they like to hang around dead wood. You stumble on a, an old log or something and you can get bitten. I mean, some people have a bad reaction to them. There's also a plant, a certain kind of stinging needle, uh, nettle, which is worse than the nettles that we know here. And it's something you definitely do not want to fall into. And a mm-hmm. small, timid, poisonous snake. <laughs> Say that again about poisonous snake? A small, timid, poisonous snake, a whip snake. Uh, where well, I would run into it in the garden sometimes, and if I stamped my foot, it would run off. But again, it had a very, like the huntsman, it had a very small mouth, and it really couldn't do anything to you. Okay. Well, if you're going to have poisonous snakes, small ones with small mouths, I mean, timid ones with small mouths is a good good kind to have. Um, so before we move on to other places, I'm just, I just want to give you a chance to anything about Deal Island that we haven't touched on that I'm sure there's a lot of things you could talk about, but any particular incidents, uh, memories you have that really stand out from your time times there? I wish we could go back. It was, you know, Seguin was our first love, no question. And it will always be have a special place in our hearts. But Deal Island is unbelievable. Um, you know, if, if that's the, if that's for you. I mean, a lot of people can't imagine spending three months alone with your spouse yeah. <laughs> on a four thousand acre island. Oh, the, 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 there there were a lot of funny things that happened. Um, well, they had a beautiful work, a uh, beautiful uh, workshop, workshop, gorgeous workshop with. You know, various caretakers had put up the various so- different signs about how you should behave in a workshop. What were they? Oh, something about always keeping things sharp. Time spent oh, yeah, sharpening is time saved. Right. Everything has a place. But of mm-hmm. course, you know, like any Coast Guard station, there's a lot of stuff all over the place. <laughs> so. mm-hmm. There were two neighboring islands that we visited when we could. But we didn't have our own boat. But we did some work on the other neighboring islands. There was a funny incident where we had to remove the outhouse on one of the islands. And going along in a small boat in open water with this outhouse sitting on it was fairly humorous. Mm. Well, and they also, in Australia, they have a program, uh, the Young Sh- the Sailing Ship Endeavor. And it was a gift from, I think, the British Navy to Australia. And it's used as kind of a growth opportunity, outward bound experience for kids. And they had um, anchored in one of the harbors and they invited us on board for dinner. It was lovely. And well, first, when we met the kids that had gotten off the boat, they were just hugging the trees because they had gotten on the boat the day before and it was a rough ride and everybody was seasick. But it was it was really a nice experience because they had sort of like the friendly the friendly portion of the Australian Navy working with the kids, and it was uh-huh. yeah, it was fun. Yeah, that sounds great. Moving on, you you uh, well, I know Deal Island. You were there three separate stretches with uh, other things in between. But uh, the next uh, place aside from that that you stayed at was not a light station. It was Protection Island National Wildlife Refuge in Washington State. Yes. yes. Right. Sailor Sea, which is just off the coast there, fairly large island. And our job was basically to keep people away because it was a wildlife refuge. And there was a big water tower, an old wooden water tower on this island. So it, it looked just like a light 
lighthouse. You'd swear it was a lighthouse. So we figured that was good enough. Okay. Yeah. So you felt at home. In that yes. Sense. We, we spent five months there and uh, that was a lot of fun. A lot of birds, a lot of birds. I was going to ask, yeah, is that the, is that the main reason for the refuge? Uh, the reason it, it, it exists is because it's an important bird nesting site. Mostly birds, yes. But also elephants, seals, things like that. And mm -hmm. one of the neat things is they provided us with a very nice boat, very seaworthy aluminum boat with a spare engine on it. And we were allowed to use that. In fact, we would circle the island slowly to keep people away to keep them from getting too close to shore. And then we would take it usually about once every week or once every 10 days ashore to do our grocery shopping, use the pool in, uh, in um, swim, swim washing. Swim. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was an interesting place because I think in the nineties, somebody tried to develop it and they cut, they divided it into, I don't know, 50 by hundred foot lots. And they sold these lots to people. And many people bought them, and then they learned that they didn't have a potable water supply. Mm. So for a while, they were bringing water out by boat, but many of the people left. And then there was a small group that said this really should be returned to the wildlife. So they fought for it. And um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife offered everybody a buyout. Uh, and one person said, no, I'm going to keep my or you could stay here for life. And then when you died, it would revert back. And one person uh, accepted that offer and he continues to live there. And he is now the sole uh, inhabitant of that island. He comes back and forth. He's not there all the time. Wow. Yeah. yeah he's huh. a character. So, you know, he wouldn't mind hearing us describe him that way. Um, With a love of the island. Yeah, a total yeah. love of the island. He's been there longer than anybody. And... He comes and goes. I mean, it's not his permanent home. He just comes and goes usually in the summer. He was he was a lot of fun. You mentioned the uh, elephant seals. Those must have been interesting. I've seen those in California. Yes, yes, I have too, the, along Big Sur there. The Piedras Blancas uh, area there. Um, there are a whole lot of them. It was mostly seagulls mm -hmm. and also... Uh, oh, rhino rhinoceros, auks, and, and eagles. And puffins. And puffins, Atlantic, not Atlantic. Uh, um, tufted puffins, yeah, you have tufted puffins on the West Coast, right? Yeah. Wow. Must have been raucous at times. <laughs> oh, I, I was just telling friends the other day, I took a recording of it because whenever we opened the house, like if I opened the door to the cabin to go out, the seagulls would immediately begin talking. You'd hear like, and it would just go along like, there she goes. And <laughs> And they they hang out on the roof, of course. And despite putting up bird bird spikes. spikes, it didn't seem to bother them. So we couldn't sleep upstairs. We had to sleep downstairs because there was just too much of a racket on the roof. It was a yeah. metal, metal roof, and they'd be sliding around as they changed positions. It was impossible. <laughs> In the middle of a seagull colony. Yeah, I know from experience too. From actually, uh, especially a night I spent at Boston Light, Boston Harbor. Uh, that the gulls never shut up all all night. They're squawking all night. So that that all these places that must have been uh, something you had to deal with pretty much. Yeah, our first experience was at Seguin because we get there in late spring and that's nesting season when they're very aggressive and that was new to us. You had to be careful where you went on the trails. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've experienced that, that too. 
Uh, yeah. So, so moving on from uh, the place in Washington, uh, let's see, you spent uh, a winter as campus hosts at Skudik Institute in the Skudik Peninsula, which is part of uh, Acadia National Park in Maine. Uh, what was that uh, job all about? Well, that was, the, from our point of view, it was a good place to go during COVID. COVID had just started and we thought, well, this is a great place to go away from everybody. And because of COVID, there was no activity there. We basically, we did some small maintenance jobs, painting. Um, we would patrol the campus. It's kind of like a college, a small college campus. And we would just go around and check the doors every night and, um, you know, shovel snow. But as you know, there's not a whole lot of snow on the, on the coast. Um, so it was very quiet. It was a very good place to weather the beginnings, you know, when COVID was really bad and was scaring everybody. So mm -hmm. it was a nice, nice place to be. And it wasn't far from Ellsworth, Maine, that we would go there. We love swimming and uh, it's great to have a place where we can go swimming in the winter. And this was a winter, a winter opportunity for us. Yeah, we yeah. were in naval housing. It was a two bedroom townhouse. And while in other years, you largely are a host and you're helping those groups that come to the property to stay, because often they are there, various groups come, research groups, uh, retreats, that sort of thing, but none of that happened. So we didn't have any hosting to do. So it was really mostly maintenance. We had a fabulous boss and it was a lot of fun. Well, it's certainly a, a gorgeous area. I love the Skudik Peninsula. It's oh, my yeah. favorite part of Acadia. Uh-huh. Little less traveled by by tourists. Of course, in winter, there's not a lot of tourists around uh, Acadia anyway. Even in the summer, it's a, it's a lot different than Mount Desert Island. Yes, a little bit off the beaten track for most people, but it's absolutely beautiful. Anyway, but after that, you moved uh, on to uh, a summer last summer at Bass Harbor Head Lighthouse, uh, which is fairly recently has become part of Acadia National Park. Uh, it was considered to be just outside the park, but now it's actually owned by uh, the National Park Service. And you were under the Park Service, you were the first caretakers there, right? Yes. So it's interesting that several of our gigs have been, we've been the first to do it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and also a protection island, the one in Washington, we were the last to do it. They no longer have any caretakers there for that. So again, like you said, we were the first ones at Bass Harbor Head. That was a unique experience as well, since we saw instead of keeping people away, we greeted up to a thousand people a day and lived in the middle of them. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say it had to be the opposite of your winter experience at Skudik Peninsula, because, you know, I've been to Bass Harbor Head Lighthouse many times over the years. And in the summer, that parking lot, which is not nearly big enough, uh, mm -hmm. is always full. And there's people wandering all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> it had to be ongoing, interesting. Ongoing debate about parking and whether they should expand it or not, or have buses come down. Well, the buses can't come down because they no place for them to turn around. Mm. But my feeling is if they did expand it, it would just fill up and it would be there's enough people as it is. Um, you go you go down to either place where you can get to the water either by the lighthouse or over on the rocks and it's pretty pretty full yeah 
more people would ruin the experience. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're right. Uh, I imagine people were showing up there at all hours. Is that right? Yeah, yeah people got there. We started in May when sunrise was about four in the morning. And a lot of people like to see sunrise and they would try to observe it under our bedroom window and not speak in their inside voices. Uh-huh. <laughs> but yeah. of course, you can't see the sunrise from there. No, you could see the sunrise. No, you couldn't. Not sunset. Neither. Oh, okay. You couldn't it was still see too either. High. It was still too far north. But of course, the big time was sunset time. Everybody thought, you know, they see some pictures, but they don't, they don't look closely at the pictures and see the snow on the ground. Because that's the only time you can see the sunset is in the winter. In the summer, you can't, it's behind the land, it's, you know, over the side, you can't see it. But everybody shows up, they go down on the rocks with their cameras, waiting for that sunset, which never happens. <laughs> I've been there, I think in November, I think I got some pretty good sunset pictures going out on the rocks and looking, yeah. looking back at it. Yeah. Not in the uh, sun. Yeah. Interesting, because they had just renovated the house. And so we were there as, you know, the systems were getting started and watching for any problems that arose. And uh, the park service was very, very supportive. Good. Yeah, I, I was inside there back when a Coast Guard family was living there a number of years ago. It's my only experience getting in the house and tower there. But it's, uh, it's, it's one of the iconic lighthouses of Maine. I know at times I've seen it in print that that is the most photographed lighthouse in Maine. I know that's not true. I know Portland Head and Noble Light, among others, I think are yeah. photographed more, but Bass Harbor's probably in the top five, I would, yeah. I would think. But it is beautiful, and they did a fabulous job renovating the inside of the house. It was very comfortable, and there were places we could go inside, one place in particular where we hung out, which was private. You couldn't see any visitors, and we just had a great view of uh, great got island out there over the over the water mm -hmm. that was really nice any other interesting experiences with with visitors unexpected unusual visitors anything like that that come to mind well you know the, as you mentioned the parking is always a problem and it wasn't our responsibility to manage the parking but when we would see things going on you know we had to say something and I wasn't shy about that. <laughs> and yeah. It's one time there was a huge gang of motorcycles. I mean, you know, you know, motorcycles are like weekend gangsters. But the, the rest of the rest of the time, they're just ordinary people. But the weekends, that's when there are these, you know, James Dean rebels. So this gang of them showed up and they were parking all over the place in front of the outhouses and everything. And I went down on the rocks and said something to them. And it was so funny because all these tough guys, these young guys and their girlfriends who sat in the back of the motorcycle, they were completely cowed. They came back up to the motorcycles with their tails between their legs. I don't know why they were afraid of me, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I felt so powerful. I, 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 <laughs> I stood down an entire motorcycle gang and lived to tell about it. That is really impressive. Wow. <laughs>
So uh, just one other thing about that, thinking about all those people there, I always think about the uh, the rocks. I mean, I've I've walked around on the rocks down there. I don't do it as much now as I did maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago when I first was going there. It's could be it, they can be slippery. It's uh, it's dangerous. And people people jump all over those rocks like it's nothing. I, did anything happen along those lines while you were there? Any accidents or anything? Because I'd always, I'm always afraid that that stuff's going to happen there. I know it. It has happened there, but when we were there, uh, there was just one man, a couple of falls, a couple of older people with falls. Nothing serious. Nothing that required a hospital visit or anything. But yeah, I was surprised. I was thankful and surprised that it didn't happen more. But it's interesting because if you're down on the rocks watching the people, you can sort of see those people that grew up rock hopping and those who it's new, you know, who's who are very cautious. It's interesting who have their sea legs, basically. Yeah. Well, like I said, I had my sea legs a lot more a few decades ago. And with the the, the glasses, the what do you call them? Progressive lenses, the three ways and everything. I find that my... Uh, my depth perception, you know, hopping around on rocks isn't what it once was. So that's my excuse. Yeah. As, that, um, that said, uh, you know, I've been very fortunate to have mm -hmm. a partner who's a doctor because there have been some times when I've gotten myself into a little trouble and it, it's nice to have Lynn around to take care of me. <laughs> I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. And then she has, she ends up doing, uh, the lion's share of the physical work sometimes while I recuperate. But it's great to have a doctor around. He does anything to get out of shoveling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sounds sounds like me. Um, it's snowing right now here pretty heavily, by the way, yeah. here in Portsmouth. So um, I don't want to keep you too too much longer. I just got a couple more questions for you. First of all, do you have any plans yet for this coming season? Not yet. We've been looking. Uh, these opportunities seem to be harder to find now. One possibility that we're hoping for is in Rocky Mountain National Park, mm. a ranch there that doesn't get used during the winter months, and they have caretaker there. So kind of have our fingers crossed about that. That would be nice. It's not actually, it's in the park, but it's not far from uh, town. But if any of your listeners know of anything, the more remote, the better. Uh, let us know. We will be going back to Seguin in the fall. We've confirmed that. Yeah, of course. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll be back at Seguin, especially you know something a winter thing is really wonderful because you know in the Adirondacks it's hard to leave the Adirondacks in the summer. Mm -hmm. You know, after you get through the winter, you want to enjoy the summer. Yeah. So. But yeah. if any of your listeners hear anything, please get in touch. Of course, winter here is summer in some places, like in Australia, right? Yeah. So you were you were there in our winter months, but it was summer there. Uh, those one uh, summer, one one of their summers, and two of their falls. Mm -hmm. If we ever get the chance to do Matt Psycho, we would do any either. You know, it's a six month thing, so either either of the two six months would be yeah. fine. I've got, well, I've got two more questions for you. Okay. For bonus points. All right. Uh, and this next one, I think I might know the answer from what you've already said, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And this is certainly for both of you. Do you have a favorite place uh, out of all the places you've been caretakers? It's a tough tie. Uh, certainly Seguin because it's, it's in our hearts and it's where everything started and where we really developed our 
skills working with power tools, doing various things, small engine repair. But Deal Island is also just magical. So those two places, no question. And Lynn mentioned skills. We always run things by each other. I think it's one of the keys to our success. We don't do things unilaterally. And between the two of us, we we say we have one brain. And we can figure it out if we, you know, plus, you know, YouTube. But uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Some place some of these places, there's no internet or very little internet. So we have to rely on our own resources. Yeah. Oh, that's what's been interesting at about Deal Island. There's very limited uh communications, but somebody before us had walked around the island and found one place in the woods where they got a cell phone signal all the way from Melbourne and they built a student desk. So if you wanted to try to communicate with home on the computer, you could walk a half mile from the house out into the woods and talk to people. But before that, there was another place where you could get a limited amount but it was on a steep walkway, paved walkway. And so we built a bench for that. And every leg of it was a different length so that you could sit comfortably <laughs> in that spot. We've built um, Aldo Leopold benches at most of the islands we've been to and left them there. What kind of bench again? It's a design that was um, created by Aldo Leopold. And it's a very simple, comfortable bench. If you just Google it, you can find the plans. What I, the first one I saw was on Seguin. We didn't know that's what it was. And I traced the angles to it. And so, and I don't think we made one. Oh, yeah. And we made a second one on Seguin. And it was just from tracing the angles of the first one. But then we subsequently found plans. Yeah, that one, that one gets in a lot of photos. The one on Seguin. Oh, yeah. If you go, and the one in uh, Deal Island is, was called the Telstra Bench. So sometimes if you Google the Telstra, Telstra bench, Telstra corner on Deal Island, you'll see that very unusual, totally level bench on a crazy footing. Yeah. Telstra, <laughs> Telstra is the Australian Verizon. So I have one final question for you. All right. And again, this is uh, very much for both of you. Let's see, you've been, you started uh, caretaking at Seguin in 2008. So it's been about 15 years Uh Give or take a little bit that you've uh, you've spent time at these these various places during that time. What has been your favorite thing or things about being caretakers at lighthouses? Frankly, it's great for our relationship. It keeps us young and alive. I think because you have you have no choice. You have <laughs> to get along with each other, otherwise you're going to be in big trouble. But it gives us it it gets us out of a rut because it's all, always a brand new situation and it's 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 a lot of fun well and i would add to that it's not although it's a brand new situation you're always living in a residence that's been occupied for hundreds of years by families before you so there's so much history in the spaces that you're in it's really a privilege to be able to share it oh that's great that you have a, a sense of that of the history that's that's gone on at these places it's yeah, incredible comes, every lighthouse of course is all about history yeah. Seguin and Baker's Island, those have such long, interesting history for sure. Yeah. But all of them, as you said. And what you just said, uh, Tim, about uh, basically the necessity of getting along 
at these places reminding me of uh george and Dottie carroll were a couple that served as caretakers takers at uh thatcher island light station off rockport mass for a number of years and Dottie used to say there are twin towers there the famous twin lights of thatcher island and she would say well there's there's two towers there and you know if we had a fight he had his lighthouse and i had my lighthouse (laughs) so they learned to to be apart when they needed to but they they certainly got along great so so lynn mako and and tim mount this is just uh, so fascinating and i feel an hour is just about an hour has gone by like nothing uh and uh you know maybe we can do it again sometime and maybe by the time we we talk again you'll have another season or two of uh experiences to talk about so you've done a great service to uh the lighthouse community to these for these uh organizations that maintain these places and i i thank you for that and i thank you so much for being part of the podcast thank you thank you very much pleasure and finally to meet you and talk with mr lighthouse himself I would never say that. The, and some of our listeners would know that the late Ken, Ken Black, the late Ken Black was known as Mr. Lighthouse. He was basically the founder of the main lighthouse museum. So I'm not going to lay claim to that title, but I appreciate you saying that very well, much. Nobody knows more about them these days, it seems, than you. Well, thank you. And again, thank you both so much. Okay. You bet. Thank you. In two weeks, our guests will be Jack and Toby Graham, another couple who have worked as lighthouse caretakers all over the map for many years. Yeah, that's right. I look forward to talking with uh, Jack and Toby Graham. I enjoy hearing about all these experiences. I could never do it myself. I don't know how to fix anything, so that disqualifies me. Uh, But another thing I want to mention today is that the U.S. Lighthouse Society has several tours coming up this year, including one that I will be leading on Long Island, New York from May 13th to the 20th. We will be seeing a bunch of great lighthouses and a couple of lightships and several museums on that tour. Details on that and all the upcoming tours can be found at uslhs.org. And of course, you can also purchase a membership in the U.S. Lighthouse Society or make a donation on the site. And remember that donations support this podcast. The writer Jack Kerouac once said, quote, because in the end, you won't remember the time you spent working in the office or mowing your lawn. Climb that darn mountain, end quote. Except he didn't use the word darn. And I think he could have said lighthouse instead of mountain. Yeah, uh, that's one of the great things about being interested in lighthouses. You get to have all kinds of adventures you wouldn't have otherwise. And uh, certainly I think our guests today prove that. My own love of lighthouses has taken me to some amazing places in this country and elsewhere, and I feel very lucky and grateful. Michelle, before we sign off, I want to mention another idea I've been thinking about. I didn't tell you in advance about this. I'd like to get your reaction. So here's my idea. You know what a flash mob is, right? Yes, I do. Okay. Well, flash mobs were, I'm sure, you know, very popular for a while. I think they kind of faded out during COVID because people weren't getting together in groups so much. I don't think they've really come back that much, uh, you know, post-pandemic, if we're even really out of the pandemic. But my idea is to do some flash mobs at lighthouses. Uh, I'm not actually sure you'd call when I'm talking about a flash mob because part of the idea of a flash mob is that it's a surprise to the public. With my idea, it wouldn't be kept secrets. A lot of people would know about it in advance. The idea is that there would be a specific day and time when people at lighthouses all over the country and hopefully all over the world would gather and dance to the same song. 
Uh, I'm thinking maybe it could be on or close to National Lighthouse Day, which is August 7th. And also, you know, if people don't live near a lighthouse, they can do it at some other location. It doesn't have to be a lighthouse. And of course, everything would be recorded on video and shared. My idea for the song is All Over the World by Electric Light Orchestra. It's a great song to dance to. It's been used in flash mobs before, and it's about partying all over the world. I'm thinking that if we launch this soon, we could make something happen this summer in August. Absolutely. So you like so, the idea? I do. I love it. So, Jeremy, if you flash mob, I'll flash mob. <laughs> okay, it's a deal. Uh, would right. you wear a, If I wear a lighthouse costume, will you wear a lighthouse costume? I absolutely will. <laughs> okay. Well, we can discuss that later, but I'm glad you like the idea. I love let, it. Uh, I can't do something like this all by myself. If anyone would like to help to coordinate uh, this type of event, or if they uh, would like to organize a local group at their lighthouse or their local area, we want to keep track of who's taking part in this. So if anybody wants to take part or help uh, organize this, please email me at jeremy at uslhs.org. Again, jeremy at uslhs.org. And we will talk more about this in future episodes of the podcast as things develop. But I'm very happy you're on board with the idea, Michelle. Yes, absolutely. All right. So for now, as always, to all our regular listeners and our new ones, thank you so much for listening and keep a good light. Let it shine, let it shine